You are listening to a conversation between Paul Ingram at BASIC in London and myself, Lars-Erik Lundin, on how to prevent nuclear use, nuclear weapons being used in the world through disarmament dip diplomacy linking up to an initiative researched by BASIC and proposed by Sweden and discussed in a ministerial meeting in Stockholm in June 2019. During the podcast we discuss also the relationship to the TPNW, the Nuclear Ban Treaty, and the need for more dialogue and more strategic empathy. I will provide keywords to mark where in the discussion we relate to different things, including the important humanitarian initiative. Okay. Hi Paul, uh, Paul Ingram. Here we are sitting in Stockholm and I suppose in London yeah, on your right. side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. more than two years after I started my inquiry on a possible Swedish accession to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And in the beginning, I think I can reveal that I met you briefly in London uh, where yeah. you were working on, as head of BASIC on related issues, exploring possible ways forward towards peace and nuclear disarmament. And then we met again only a few weeks ago in London. Uh, to discuss the uh, uh, state of play in a setting governed by so-called Chatham House rules, so which means that I couldn't speak about what was said there so much. So I felt the need to see what could be said publicly now, because there is a great need for information about what is happening in this area. On the level of Sweden, this is not least the case because the Swedish government decided, of course, not to sign the treaty, but to observe uh, its development once it enters into force and at the same time the government is in parallel pursuing an initiative where you are very closely associated in even giving providing some of the main ideas looking at the uh, uh, at the possible parallel track which you call the stepping stones approach uh, which led to a ministerial meeting in Stockholm mid-June of this year with more than a dozen countries represented and so on. And then you had a number of follow-up events. So I think people are wondering, uh, who have heard about this, uh, what is all about, what is the link to the MPT, what is the link to the general issue about the process of uh, nuclear disarmament and also deterrence, actually, uh, nuclear policies in general. And of course, with the day-to-day uh, -day struggle to prevent war and indeed nuclear war as crises are underway in Korea with Iran, etc. Et so what I would like to ask you to do is say first a few words about yourself, how you came into this and uh, mm. where you come from, so to say. I don't yes. want to present you. It's better that you present yourself. Yes, and what is you. basic, of course. So. Yes, thank you, Lars Eric. Um, well, let me let me begin by describing myself. Um, I I have been involved uh, in a lifetime of work trying to achieve nuclear disarmament, 
Uh, I began uh, and uh, for much of my uh, early years in the field, uh, I would be uh, involved in direct action. Uh, I was a very active member of the Green Party, I still am a member of the Green Party, uh, was elected at local uh, government level, which at the time was the only air, uh, level that uh, Greens in Britain uh, ever achieved success uh, in elections and then ran a city council. Uh, at the same time, I was um, running election campaigns uh, uh, and uh, running uh, peace uh, marches. Uh, and in fact, the 2003 um, march against war in Iraq, um, I helped to organise that as a member of the uh, steering committee of the Stop the War Coalition, alongside Jeremy Corbyn and a number of others. And, and I would say that my beliefs and my views on nuclear weapons and on achieving peace have not changed dramatically, uh, but, uh, but my methods have. Uh, and I, I'm very strongly welcome this opportunity, Lars-Eric, to explain how those uh, methods have evolved and changed as a direct result of some quite uh, profound shifts in my own perspective of how the world works and how I sit in it. Uh, and how to achieve change uh, realistically uh, in situations where uh, some people, some states uh, use um, deeply unhelpful un, uh, and, and problematic approaches uh, to, um, to inter international relations uh, and to uh, threatening the annihilation of millions of people. Put, put very simply, um, I believe nuclear weapons are wrong. I believe the way in which we try to achieve strategic balance is wrong. But I recognize that this is a belief. And that as I engage as an individual and uh, within my organization on these issues, I need to recognize that my belief, while strongly held, is only one amongst many. And that if I can hold that belief and engage with others who hold very different beliefs, from a place of openness, seeking common ground, seeking common places of departure. And in this area that we're talking about, a common place of departure is that we all want to reduce and minimize the risks of nuclear use. Uh, and it is my profound belief that everybody, um, bar a very small number of um, uh, dysfunctional people, uh, agree with that objective. If we can if we can agree on that objective and then discuss openly uh, our different beliefs and how we come to, to work through them effectively, uh, then we're going to have a discussion and a debate that is much more constructive than the one we have done, which has rather been black and white and rather yeah. polarized. And a little bit focusing also on stigmatizing, of course, which is uh, a natural process in the, when you're, you're pursuing campaigns for, for a a very yes. important yes, goal. Yes, there's a that... problem here, Lars-Eric, and I'm glad you raised that word, because in my experience, when you stigmatize somebody, you actually uh, encourage them to stick in their existing position and to be very defensive. Mm. And that happens universally, in my experience. But if you are dealing with somebody who is more powerful than you, who has more weapons or more capability, then it, it's even more unproductive. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think that people who have 
um, seen uh, or interpreted ch political change in the past as coming about through stigmatization have missed the point uh, because actually there are other means in which we achieve change which are more about recognizing uh, pr progress and uh, opening up to relationships that are more constructive and productive and that meet the objectives that we have. Okay, can I interject there that uh, I don't have a difficulty in following you so far because I, I've recently written a, a paper myself about my experiences from the end of the Cold War and the literature and lessons learned which, which uh, have been uh, produced since. Uh, uh, including on the on the issue of perceptions and mindsets and the need to to see uh, not only common ground but also an an interest on the part of each actor in, including each leader uh, for, for dealing with this problem of uh, horrendous nuclear use and the risk of that and mm. uh, that we actually had some very important changes of mindsets and perceptions towards the end of the cold war which however probably could not have led to the rather important progress of which we saw with 85% of the weapons going away and, and a, a large-scale unilateral disarmament on the conventional level as well, had it not been for the fact that we started with step-by-step uh, -step approaches, very, very limited. In fact, I was involved in 18 months of procedural negotiations on CSBMs in the early phase of the Gorbachev era. Uh, which probably was important because it led to agreements on on-site inspection and that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious now, when you, when you then uh, zoom in on the notion of stepping stones or steps by step, uh, how, do you, how do you see that? So, uh, so in, it's, it, it's come to my belief that, that you achieve change when people are fundamentally in disagreement. You achieve change by uh, engaging in strategic empathy, by using uh, active listening techniques to, uh, to ensure that one's opponent feels heard and that uh, they they can move in a in a direction and and these things take time trust takes time relationship building takes time and, and takes patience therefore and and that therefore it has to be a step step by step process um i personally i see myself as a radical i still am a radical i have a belief that we need to move uh, in quite dramatic ways as a society, both to achieve sustainability and to move away from these ways of uh, having our defence policies based upon uh, mutual annihilation, which inevitably will come, in my belief, to nuclear use uh, sooner or later, and, and the dangers will get more. So I, I subscribe to very similar beliefs to those that are, that are uh, pursuing the ban treaty. But my awareness has has evolved into uh, understanding that we have to take people with us, <clears throat> and taking people with us means understanding them and engaging in this empathy, and and that doesn't mean um, a middle of the road wishy washy. Uh, all we want to do is to make small moves. It means that when we make these steps, we then we are, by making those steps, changing the reality. And as we reach this new reality with quite modest steps, 
we can open people's minds to the next step and the next step so that it becomes it becomes a pathway in a direction that everybody is feeling able to participate in. Uh, what this requires, and this is where the real radical bit comes in, Lars Eric. What this requires is that we is that we let go of attachment to a particular outcome. I have a belief, but if I attach myself to a particular outcome in achieving that belief, I will engage in in a conflicting uh, uh, battle with those that disagree with me. If instead I put proposals forward that I know will not be achieved exactly the way I am proposing them, if I see instead that these are uh, invitations to dialogue, to adaption, to moving those proposals, to ensuring that those proposals start to become something that others who disagree with us can start to adapt them and, and, and then back them, we have much greater chance of success. And that is the essence of the stepping stones approach. It's about putting out proposals in a way that is about inviting others, including the nuclear weapon states, into a dialogue that is committed to achieving reductions in the risk of nuclear use, which they can sign up to as an objective. Yeah, and, and let's uh, address the issue of time perspectives immediately here because people will then say, of course, it takes too long time, we have to, we have to move faster, we need to get, get to, the, to the real issue uh, very quickly through political processes, uh, influencing governments and so on. But I have the feeling that when studying the TPNW, the ban treaty, uh, uh, it is actually a very long-term perspective there as well. I mean, you, you are actually talking about a very long period before we can even hope to have any of the nuclear weapon states involved in the process. And even then, it's going to be a negotiation between them according to the treaty, which will take a very long time. So, so in this sense, uh, what we are focusing on here, I suppose, is both... Uh, to get uh, a process towards disarmament underway or arms control underway or, or, or confidence building measures underway, what have you, uh, and at the same time preventing nuclear use in the process. Yeah, so I have to tell you, Lars Eric, I am not naturally a patient person. <laughs> and and I, I, I side with those who say that we don't have very long. Mm. Uh, we need to move fast. But that, but that belief, that sense that I have, that that a sense of urgency on this issue, uh, is is something I have to handle because in the end, uh, I may want rapid change, but my desire for rapid change and my belief that without it there is a higher risk has to sit in reality and inside reality we have to move at the speed of those who have the power so our objective must surely be to draw them into a process it has to be that way because if they are opposed to the process then uh, then actually the process doesn't go anywhere mm. and drawing them into that process means we have to understand them and actually and again this is another fundamental thing about the stepping stones approach it is a peace approach to achieving nuclear disarmament mm. 
as opposed to an approach that is confrontational uh, and and shaming, which is actually quite an aggressive approach. If we are to achieve the peaceful objective that we are looking for, if we are to encourage nuclear weapon states to release their grip on these damaging approaches to achieving stability and instead deepen their relationships in a more constructive way, we, those of us who are trying to encourage them in this direction, have to act the way we are preaching to them. And the way we act has to be one of empathy, of building processes that are about relationship rather than about confrontation. Yeah. Can, can I immediately there also interject uh, that uh, when, when you focus, focus on the notion of a process, that obviously has implications for how we see the NPT and the work ahead now towards the review conference. I heard from someone else when I was interviewing people for, for my, my inquiry that the most important thing for the MPT is actually not the words that are written on paper or are not agreed uh, possibly at the end of the review conference, but it is the process of cooperation that uh, takes place within the framework of the MPT regime that needs to be safeguarded and, 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 and obviously also other types of bilateral, trilateral and so forth cooperative patterns that we have. Could you say a little bit about how this feeds into the MPT process now. We are so, now, yeah. Certainly. So we are we are pretty much now six months away from the uh, review conference that happens every five years, uh, and there is, as one can imagine, a building pressure on states to achieve something either before or at the review conference, uh, and we have for some time, some years actually. <laughs> Uh, be, have been struggling with this idea that actually what is likely to happen is that the review conference will end in failure, failure as not achieving progress on the, on the agenda and not having a final document. And there are reasons for that that we have to be realistic about, not least the incumbents in, in the White House uh, and in the Kremlin, who seem to uh, attach much greater value to their own capabilities than to progress on multilateral disarmament. So it is it is a fearsome problem. My belief is that in uh, the run-up to the review conference and at the review conference itself, we need to be seeing this as building the foundation stones for the next steps. Mm. And what that means is we need to be re-establishing commitments to approaches that are consensual and and cooperative, that we are rebuilding habits where states understand that their security depends upon other states feeling secure as well, and that we need to be uh, also at the same time focusing on specific proposals that will send the signals that states are signing up to the principles of the four uh, elements of the stepping stones approach, namely reducing nuclear risks, reducing the salience of nuclear weapons, enhancing transparency and controls, and rebuilding these habits of cooperation that we're talking about. Mm. And we have particular proposals that we've been developing in those four areas, 
that we know will not be adopted by the nuclear weapon states in May. But we're putting those proposals to them as invitations for them to uh, to put their own uh, proposals in relation to them so that we're then in discussion because it is when we discuss when we understand that our security depends on others uh, engaging in these diplomatic uh, processes that we then start to build the foundations so my my desire is that the review conference finishes with a sense that states have spent a month in New York listening to each other, understanding each other's perspective and building a framework of action that uh, that is consensual and that those and that the nuclear weapon states feel some level of commitment to, not because they've been shamed, but because they see their own national security as dependent upon stable global relationships that require us to move in the direction away from depending on massive nuclear arsenals. And but do you do you expect that that could be codified in an agreed document? I I hope so, but I'm not attached to that particular outcome. I again I think we need to recognize um as I said earlier one of the fundamental uh, principles of the stepping stones approach is that we don't attach to particular outcomes. Right. I, I I hope that we do have a final document, but success may look like not having a final consensual document, but nevertheless an expression of principles of approach moving forward, and possibly um, uh, a number of steps that uh, that not everybody has agreed to, but that not everybody is disagreeing to, uh, right. but that there is an agenda for future conversation. My feeling is that success at the review conference is not about a final document. Exactly. It is about what happens in the years that, 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 that we witness uh, after the review conference and that the review conference assists in some way or other, and I'm open to what that looks like, assists in building the foundations for a more constructive discussion about how we how we open people's minds and hearts to this bigger agenda, which is finding security through common security architectures rather than through self-help national defense capabilities that manifest in large nuclear weapons arsenals. I think this is quite important uh, because uh, uh, also in Sweden there are obviously people who feel that uh, let's now wait to see what happens during the MPT review. If there is no agreed outcome, then we have to re renew the discussion about the how to move forward with uh, our engagement with the uh, TPNW, etc., etc. Whereas I, my experience is that uh, the window of opportunity for improved uh, uh, improved uh, international agreements by by consensus uh, has. This deteriorated considerably since, uh, let's say, 2010. I was involved in a summit on human rights and, and the rule of law commitments in, in the OSCE in 2010 uh, as one of the main negotiators uh, for the EU. And I remember that we, it was already then a great risk-taking to seek to reaffirm all the commitments we had 
about human rights and rule of law, etc. Mm. During that summit, because it was just you know the the last minute, so to say, before we were moving ahead uh, towards uh, the problems we then had in Ukraine and so on. So, mm. so uh, I completely understand what you are saying that what we are looking for here is a is a foundation of a for a process of cooperation which uh, might not be able to be possible to codify in agreed language but we might give it enough energy to continue the process after after the the review conference itself yes yes so i i, I think i agree with that the the i do i have to say i do have sympathy for those who are ban treaty proponents uh, saying that we need somehow to keep the pressure up mm. and, and 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 I understand that and I have as I said at the start devoted a large part of my uh, adult life to to seeking ways of uh, applying effective pressure in political circumstances um, but I think we also have to recognize that sometimes that approach of putting pressure on can have uh, uh, can have consequences that are counterproductive and so it, it, it's it, it's moving away from this black and white feeling that we have to put pressure on to achieve outcomes. Mm. We do need pressure, but we also need uh, uh, to reach out and to uh, and to find ways in which we address the reasons, the underlying reasons why states feel so attached to possessing nuclear weapons, and we need to find alternative means. For achieving the security, and that, to my mind, means uh, means building these habits of cooperation that lead step by step towards a world where states do not feel the need to sit alone, but rather to um, to collaborate with uh, with states that have different interests to theirs, uh, and. Uh, and that's that's where we need to go. Um, yeah. So so there's a guide star there that I think I would share with a lot of proponents of the ban treaty. There's a guide star of where we want to go, but there is a, a, a recognition that I have that I don't know how we're going to get there. Yeah. But it is but it is something about building these habits of cooperation between states. It's about understanding why the Russians feel surrounded it's understanding why they see their nuclear arsenal as one of the few cards in their hand that they can play in the game of poker with other states and how we can somehow come to assure them that they can achieve security without possessing large numbers of nuclear weapons or worse going down the route of uh, building nuclear weapons that are destabilizing and we need to persuade Americans that the approach that they're currently being offered, which involves the uh, steps towards strategic dominance, actually have such negative outcomes, not just for global security, but for American national security, that they need to come back to the approach that we had in the 1990s of trying to build relationships by through through disarmament. Uh, of course, we made many mistakes in the 1990s, and we can we can we can learn by them. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes of all was treating Russia as a as a um, as a country that had uh, been vanquished. 
Uh, and, and of course it hadn't because it still had a large nuclear weapons arsenal. We can learn those lessons and we need to move forward in a more constructive way. Yeah. That's what the Stepping Stones approach is all about. Yeah. <clears throat> to, to, um, to what extent? I, I noted that you, you intervened in the House of Lords uh, inquiry about, uh, about uh, NPT and so on, where you participated recently, uh, mm. that you also refer to the, the, the fact that uh, when we talk about non-proliferation, we talk both about vertical and horizontal proliferation. And we yes. mustn't forget either of the two dimensions. Uh, my question to you is then, to what extent do you feel that we are now in a sort of a damage limitations uh, posture when it comes to the horizontal side of, of, of proliferation? I mean, we, have, uh, we have worries about security guarantees, uh, and we have worries about uh, possible uh, plans for regime change in different parts of the world, uh, uh, policies which have not been very successful in the past and which have set a bad precedent for the future in the perceptions of, of current uh, leaders in, in different countries in conflict. How, how closely related are these two dimensions, vertical and, and horizontal, in your view? And how much are we now actually in a even in a dramatic damage limitation situation? So um, I think it's really challenging to uh, get a, a, a balanced perspective in all of this uh, and to really understand what the risks are. On the one hand, the threat of nuclear proliferation to new countries uh, is, in my belief, o overstated and used to justify certain actions against particular countries. Um, in my belief, and I've studied Iran very, very closely over the last 15 to 20 years, uh, and have traveled to that country on many occasions. In my belief, I do not believe that the Iranians have ever been in a race to acquire nuclear weapons. But what they have done is uh, attempted to uh, to develop the option because mm. options are valuable. The city I'm currently in has made billions of dollars on selling options. Uh, that means having future, future possibilities. That doesn't mean that the Iranians have ever decided to acquire nuclear weapons. But it has been used by those uh, in other countries who want to see Iran as a, a, a fundamental adversary to, uh, to describe Iran as a massive threat to all states. And it's just not true. Uh, and uh, if we then um, zoom out uh, and look at the possibilities of nuclear proliferation, to other countries, there there are no there are no other countries that are on the brink of acquiring nuclear weapons who don't already have them. The the, the big case at the moment, of course, is North Korea. They have nuclear weapons now, uh, but what there is is there is more of a danger of a slow erosion of uh, the uh, the norm against new countries acquiring nuclear weapons. So I can't tell you whether there will be new nuclear weapon states in 15, 20 years time from now because of this erosion of the norm. And the vertical proliferation by the existing possessor states plays a major role in eroding that norm. 
because mm. nuclear weapons sit within a set of global narratives, one of which is about unfairness. Uh, it's about uh, imperial pasts and colonialism. It, it's why the non-aligned movement has been so assertive in blaming the nuclear weapon states for the current problems, because the, partly because there is a colonial dimension to this. There are, there are narratives around um, the unfairness that some states uh, seem to think that their own nuclear weapons contribute to global security, whilst any other countries possessing them uh, undermine it. Uh, and of course, that, that, that makes no sense from a global perspective. Mm. So, so, so I think this is why the NPT came out with this bargain at, the, at its root, that nuclear weapon states recognize that they cannot possess nuclear weapons forever without these weapons spreading because uh, because the arguments they put for having them apply just as well to other countries there is a problem here not only that uh, that their own possession of nuclear weapons uh, drives the uh, arguments in favor of possessing nuclear weapons by other states but it also deepens and strengthens this argument that the global system is based on unfairness. Yeah. And, uh, and, and states with nuclear weapons underplay the role of, un of fairness in the discussions around nuclear proliferation. And I, I think it's high time that they took those, issue those questions of fairness alongside security much more seriously. And then, of course, we are not just talking about states. We're also talking about actors within states, including uh, what I saw towards the end of the Cold War when I, I worked as a junior diplomat reporting on think tanks, writing uh, about uh, threat perceptions and, and plans and where, is, uh, where are the Soviets going, etc., etc. I, I could almost uh, immediately uh, guess who was financing what product, so to say. It was, uh, uh, there, there was no end in the Soviet military capabilities in, on the, uh, in, the, in the perceptions of some think tanks, whereas others were much more question, questioning the, these, uh, the futures. And the same thing we have here, that people do have an interest in sometimes to overestimate uh, threats and... Uh, and to uh, to uh, focus on uh, difficulties rather than opportunities, and uh, and this, of course, we also have to have in our mind when we discuss these issues. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 learning these lessons that we learnt from the past but seem to have forgotten. Uh, you know the the ways in which the the populist movements across Europe and, the, and North America have captured the domestic imagination. They've also had a huge impact on foreign policy uh, priorities and approaches uh, for a negative way, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And we, need to, we need to draw the public a broader, uh, broader discussion uh, beyond the technical dimension and yeah. seeing this in terms of principles, principles of relationships between states, uh, principles of fairness, principles of, of seeing the interrelationships that we have in the yeah. international community. What, what is interesting, uh, when if I come closer to the end now of, of this uh, uh, discussion, 
uh, when you go back to civil society, I, I'm, in, I'm fascinated by the fact that towards the end of the Cold War and uh, uh, in the beginning of the 90s, there was a large-scale agreement in civil society with the posture of, of some governments that you really need to establish friend, friendly com, uh, contacts between peoples on all levels. You needed to have this uh, strategic empathy also on le lower levels. You needed to, you know, play football together. You need to, to have friendship, uh, cities and what have you. And all of this we are now coming to back to in my country as well. I mean, uh, we, that we need to, to feel that other, others who live in, 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 on the other side, so to say, in, in military terms, um, they have their problems and which need to need empathy and we need to feel feel uh, a compassion uh, with them, uh, not only in simple humanitarian terms, but also hoping that their future is also to a certain extent our own future. Yeah. And um, what, what, what I uh, want to ask as a final question to you, how can we get to the point when civil society see your agenda here as a way forward in this regard, that the step-by-step -step is not just a matter for governments, but also for for peoples and for, for I mean, uh, we're working with Pugwash and whatever. I'm just going to a Pugwash meeting next week on this, these issues where we'll sit down with the Russians on these particular, uh, on this precise question. How do, how do we get the scientific communities together again, etc.? Yes, I think, I personally think that this begins with oneself uh, and, uh, and recognizing that we have a tendency to uh, attach to particular solutions uh, and then to, uh, to argue, uh, to marshal our, our um, forces, uh, whatever they may be, to back the particular solution or proposal that we have. Uh, and another dimension that I think that has really come to the fore in political but also personal relationships that I've seen uh, across the piece here is is the way in which we think we get what we want by demanding it and then um, and then uh, being inflexible and uh, pushing uh, the other uh, to the brink uh, mm. which of course is the is the essence of nuclear deterrence but we do it in our own daily lives and if yeah. we can recognize the way we do this in our daily lives, in our political opinions, in our political approaches, and instead seek to shift the way we operate uh, ourselves, to see the way in which we do the things that we criticize others and our own governments for, and instead do things differently, that's the really radical move that we yeah. in civil society can take. And it is by acting from example in that way that we can invite those that disagree with us into a different approach. And I would finish by saying I am I am working on this stepping stones approach with people I have radically disagreed with who have been in charge of nuclear weapons systems themselves, who have been in charge of nuclear weapons policy, who have seen the transformation that I have gone through myself from somebody who is certain of their opinions yeah. and clear that what uh, what needs to happen, uh, transformation into somebody who's willing to listen and understand and even be willing to be open to the possibility that I may be wrong. They have seen that 
and they have seen that as an invitation to engage themselves from a more open and adaptive place. Yeah. So I, I believe we in civil society need to act the way we are asking our governments to act. And quite apart from that being the right way, it's also more effective. Yeah. And certainly we need to build on the humanitarian initiative. Uh, I mean, yes. in, in itself, it is something which mustn't, uh, mustn't become stigmatized, uh, so to say. Uh, uh, it is certainly uh, an extremely important uh, and I, in my inquiry, I make a point of being, quoting in extenso what uh, what the, uh, uh, the the uh, Mr. Kellenberger, the head of uh, the Red Cross, said on on the Hiroshima in in the witness of the doctors, you know, from uh, in in a, a paper published in 2010, which I think was one of the starting points of the humanitarian discussion. Yes. So thank you. Mm. Um, I think this might need a follow-up as we come closer, if you agree at some point, uh, to, to move on, mm -hmm. uh, look at how things developed uh, when we come closer to the MPT review itself. I think there will be an interest in this. We will see. Uh, uh, certainly, I will put this out on, on SoundCloud, and, and, and we'll, there, it will be available for those who are interested, both in Sweden and elsewhere. Yes, that's grand. Thank you. Thank you very much.